Welcome to the Truth CSGO podcast, episode 58. Today we are talking the CIS and Europe miners. I buy power masters day one. The upcoming Asia and North America miners, the philosophy of Spinoza, socioeconomic mobility in video games, and a whole lot of other random stuff about life and the universe. Hey guys, this is Electro. Hey guys, I'm Guardian. This is Daps. This is Nico. This is Nifty. This is Chris J. This is Ferry. Code Zero. Flusher. Oh, this is Kerrigan. Are you listening to the truth? The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. The truth. CSGO podcast. Are we rushing in or are we going sneaky beaky like? Now there's a lot to get through in this episode. There's a hell of a lot actually. But I'm going to take my time because I want to. Now, there are some also some things to apologize about and just warn you of. If you hear any thumps or banging about, that's because there's some children who are currently living above me and they seem to enjoy running back and forth above my head. Uh, if you hear any murderous intent creeping into my voice while describing perhaps a game between Ghost and Phase, it doesn't have anything to do with the results. It actually refers to these particular children. Uh, Also, there's going to be a bit of creaking because I've currently got the microphone perched on a wooden bench in my room, which was the only thing I could find to put it on because the echo was so terrible in the living room, uh, which was two episodes ago. These are the things I do for you, people, because I love you. I love you like you're my blood. Now, the CIS miners probably should be the first thing we talk about. They have uh, completed as of this morning. Spirit and Avangar were the winners. Avangar came first. Spirit came second. Let's talk a little bit about runtime. Runtime.gg, if you recall, they're, of course, seized team. They managed to nab themselves. Runtime as their sponsor. The isomultulose, the main ingredient for Runtime's next-level meal replacements, wasn't enough to save Seize and Hooch and Staric from getting banged out by Windstrike and Pro 100. They came in last... Nemiga, the Belarusians lost to Spirit and Gambit, even though Lollipop 2K, he did his best to get his name in the record books. He did quite well, actually, old mate 2K. I guess he's the uh, more fun boy version of Stewie. Simon, who were another team I knew absolutely jack diddly about. They beat Gambit in the best of one, but couldn't beat them in a best of three. Pro 100 couldn't beat Avangar, and they were crunched out as well. Now, let's have a little bit of a chat about Gambit, because... This is like the first time in quite some time Gambit won't be in the major. Gambit, of course, have Bondic and Axile replacing Adrian and Hobbit, who both managed to squeeze their way out of this limping roster. I think last episode I reported that Angel was on the Gambit roster. That was 110% erroneous of me. Axile was, of course, on the roster. Now, Axile, <clears throat> I actually felt, was a bit of a weak link for this team. They they weren't very cohesive, for one, um, and Bondic made excuses intimating that they hadn't had enough practice in his interview with HLTV. Bondic actually played okay, but Axile was playing very cautious, and I don't think he didn't look very confident at all. This could have been because he wasn't quite fitting into the team yet because they hadn't had enough practice or what i'm not sure but the individuals there could not save these guys from getting knocked out they did go down as i said to spirit spirit have of course been together for quite some time in comparison to gambit they actually have some really cool strats worked out especially on mirage 
they had a proper game plan. Now the top fragger on Spirit, who's someone you should definitely be keeping a greedy little eyeball on in the near future, was some die young. That's all one word. He was by far and away the top fragger on this team. Uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about Avangar. Um, Avangar came in first. They beat Windstrike in their decider. Avangar, Avangar are very impressive now as a team. Their core of Buster, Quikert, and Jame are pretty damn good. Buster especially is a nasty player to look out for. They've been together quite some time, that core. Uh, obviously a lot longer than the core of Windstrike, who's two players from QBF um, just didn't have enough gumption to keep them together against uh, Avangar. But um, I guess we've now strayed into the topic of Windstrike, which, as you know, is a bit of a favorite topic of this old pod. Uh, what's cool about Windstrike, especially in um, these matches, is that Norbert has emerged as a bit of a killer pickup. Norbert is only 17. My eyeballs were, of course, feasting upon the delights, the visual delights of Boomich and Kvik from the old QBF roster, but Norbert uh, emerged as the front runner, the front fragger, I should say, on this lineup. It's it's interesting, considering everyone else on that team is at least three years older than him, um, he's definitely a bit of an X factor on this team. Now, what's cool too is that I think I reported last week as well that there were only two teams getting through this minor. I was incorrect which I know is really, really the case on this pod, considering the assiduous homework I put into it. Um, it might be because <clears throat> old mate Josh has not been doing the news, although he assures me he is back and will be helping me in the future. He had school exams, so don't get, don't, don't get, don't be too hard on him. Uh, but anyway, look, Windstrike aren't completely out of the minor. They do go into another little game in the future against the third place of the NA minor, the third place of the Asia minor. And I think maybe they'll play the third place of the CIS minor. I'm not sure. Either way, there's two places up for grabs still, which two teams out of those four third places in the minors will be competing for. So we still are in with a chance to have some boomage magic at the major. Now, the reason I mentioned the age of Norbert and how much younger he is in the team is because these guys actually have quite a cool mix of ages and experience. Obviously, you've got the bro, the love, the bromance between uh, Boomich and Quick from QBF, but you've also got the grizzled veterans in World Edit and Waylander who've basically been banging about in uh, Counter-Strike since the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. So then when you add in this uh, 17-year-old prodigy, this 17-year-old prod, similar to what's going on in Ents, you've got quite a, I don't know, quite a juicy, perhaps, little joker up your sleeve in Windstrike. I'd love to see them get through to the major so I can buy myself a Boomich sticker, which I neglected to do at the last majors. Um, <clears throat> and also, you know what? I think I may just make a frag movie. That's right. The Truth CSGO podcast may come out and make its own Boomich frag movie if he makes it through. And perhaps if he does not, just make it anyway as a consolation prize. Anyway, the final decider in this minor was between Spirit and Windstrike. Spirit, as I said, uh, were much too cohesive for Windstrike. Um, and some die young just went full ham. Now, let's get on to the player of the week, which actually emerged out of this CIS minor. That was between Gambit and Simon. The, it was the best of three. Simon won the first game, and then they were down two to six in the second map. And the second map was Dust Two, and they did a very interesting take of the A side on Dust Two. They were on the T side. 
Now this is probably a strat that uh, if you've been uh, around in the scene since 1.6, you would recognize it's nothing new. And we've seen various iterations of it, even on the, the most recent Dust2. But it was the first time I'd seen it recently in a pro match on LAN. And basically what they did was send three players short. And instead of just moving across to the bomb site, they did the smokes and the usual flashes so that Mo, who was waiting near car with an AWP to pick them off as they went across the short uh, bridge, he got the usual flashes and assumed that they were coming there. But actually all three of them jumped down off short. And... They Some of them turned around to see if there was anyone mid who was in CT spawn who could get them. No one was. And actually, B-Site had been smoked off by their mid player, which was the mid to B-Smoke. So they had a clean one up to beneath the site. Mo was scoped up on short. He managed to flick down and get one of them, but his, his scope went right back up to short because he assumed that there'd be at least one other player on short. However, of course, there were two more coming from mid. They killed him and they took the site. They actually did lose uh, the retake from Gambit, which was just some bad decisions on their behalf. But this was a very cool strat to see on uh, Tier 1 LAN. And I think if you've got a little puggy team yourself and are playing out some strats, I'm trying some strats, give it a burl. Get your mid player to smoke the mid to B smoke and then send three players short, drop them all down onto mid, and then take the site from there. Now, let's move on to the EU miners. That's basically what I've got for the CIS miners. I think uh, a Vanguard is going to do some damage for sure. Uh, in the major proper, I'm not so sure about spirit. I think they're a little, they have a little less identity in their strats and cohesion. But a vanguard definitely here to make a splash. Yeah, let's move on to the EU miners. Now the EU miners, as of recording this podcast, is actually still being played out. I've got to record it now because I won't have time later on. But the final uh, decider is being played between Vitality and North. They're both one map each. So the decider is starting in about 10 seconds, actually. <laughs> so perhaps by the time we get to the end of this podcast, I can report on who won. But the biggest story of the EU miners was, of course, that the favorite and highest ranked team, Mouse Sports, was shut down. They actually beat Vitality and Optic, but they lost twice to Valiance. And they will also, like Gambit, not being attending, being it be not be attending the first major for them in quite some time. And I think the first major for Chris J in a long time. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them in a second. But for Valiance, we should just outline exactly who they are. They're of course the team. Sort of infamous, I guess, in some ways for having Hunter, who is Nico's cousin. But also, they recently drafted Esperanto, uh, who was a former player with the British organization, the Imperial. He held that organization hostage when he refused to play with Crystal, the German IGL who they brought in. And the organization acquiesced to his blackmail only for him to leave them for valiance. So them getting banged out of the major is somewhat of a bag of D back in his way, uh, back in his direction. Um, for being somewhat disloyal to his organization, although who knows what goes goes on beyond the scenes. Now, Valance, Valiance, of course, uh, did get banged out as well. They had a very good showing, including this win against Mouse Sports. And one of the players who did an interview was Nexa. Now, Nexa, you may recall from his time in Renegades, but he did say uh, that one of the reasons they were so successful uh, I guess beyond people's expectations here was because of their anti-stratting. And they had a week to prepare against Mouse Sports. All the teams knew who they were going to play in the week prior. And this prompted Sean Guerres to come out and say that he didn't think it was a great idea that teams had seven days before the actual match to prepare for one particular team who they knew they were going to play. 
And I think his reasoning went somewhat along the lines of the fact that a team like Valiance, who have a relatively new roster, who don't really have any demos online for Mouseports to look at and prepare for, coming up against a team like Mouseports, who have over two years worth, I think, with this particular lineup, or a year and a half at least, tons of tier one demos on all the maps that uh, Valiance and Nexa can just go absolutely ham watching and prepare for every scenario with. So there's a bit of a disparate... Dis- bit of a disparate... Um, how would you say, opportunity to prepare. However, I think there's definitely an argument for the fact that if Mouseports is the better team, it doesn't really matter how much they can be anti-strated. And in fact, if they're going to be a top team, they should be constantly evolving their meta. And the proof, I guess, was in part of the pudding when Chris J, I think it was, came out and said that they really hadn't done much preparation or as much as they should. And it only practiced for about seven days prior to this tournament as well, which considering they'd, ha- they'd had at least two weeks in the player break to prepare is pretty disappointing for a team which should be, well, which was number five going into this minor. Um, so personally, when I was watching these guys play, I did get the feeling that there was something bubbling under the surface with this Mouseports roster. Um, and when they actually won, I think it was against Optic, yeah, it was a very desultory win. There weren't any smiles. There wasn't any laughter. They weren't having fun. Even Optic, who was losing um, for most of it, were having fun and laughing and stuff. So it's possible that there's something going on in that camp or that some decision had been made prior to this tournament. There's been a lot of rumblings about Sunny perhaps jumping ship to Ents or somewhere like FaZe. Um, actually, on the most recent podcast by uh, Thorne and Richard Lewis, someone mentioned the idea that Tarek could perhaps be a good addition to this roster if someone like Sunny was to go out. I think it's actually quite a good idea. He's a pretty puggy player. He's got some ideas as an IGL Personality-wise, I'm not sure whether it would fit. Another idea that the community has uh, bandied about is Carrigan joining um, once his stint with Envy is over, as most people expect it to be post-major. I don't see Carrigan fitting in with this team personality-wise at all. Um, The way I've always seen Mouseports really has been a sort of a team of misanthropes uh, who just sort of manage to pop off occasionally when the stars align and when they don't they just really can't get anything done, which accounts for their instability as a roster, their inconsistency. And I think if you bring someone in like Carrigan, as strong as his personality may be, you're still going to have difficulty rallying those guys. What they need is some sort of friendship outside the game or psychological coach who can keep give them a baseline for their performances because, as we've heard them say before, they're not really friends outside the game. There's no baseline of good mood that they can fall back to even if they're down in a map or down in a tournament. And so you see these wild results. I don't necessarily think that having a roster change at this point is a good idea. They only won ASL New York like what, a month and a half ago. So they're still capable of massive performances. And I know that was with, uh, I think that was with Snacks. Um, but Stiko has actually been one of the best players since he returned. And actually watching these games with Mouse Sports, Stiko's aim was on point. I don't think stat-wise he really uh, showed up as much as um, other players like Sonny and Chris J, but I don't think it was because he was not uh, skilled or prepared for this one. And also watching the games, he was one of the most relentlessly uh, positive, upbeat guys. He was on the end of the team closest to the cameras, so maybe a bit biased, but he was always the one um, trying to get fist bumped from Oscar and uh, trying to talk to the other teams after uh, the other team, the rest of the team, I should say, after the games. 
So uh, this is a long way of saying, I don't think they should make any changes. I think they should get a psychological coach in or someone who can give them a baseline of good feelings in that team. LMBT, I don't think is providing enough of that right now to keep them consistent in between games. Enough about mouse sports. Let's move on to Optic. Optic uh, have been banged out as well, even with the addition of Refresh, who replaced old mate Nico. They weren't able to do much good here. They lost to Vitality in mouse sports. I couldn't help but think that they were playing for the survival as a roster, um, like... North and to some extent Mouse Sports. There's been a lot of calls to add Carrigan as a leader to this squad. I'm also not sure about that, mainly because I don't know the personalities very well on this team. I think Snappy hasn't done too badly. Their online results have been not too bad. He's got a rating, I think, of 1.02. And they did manage to come second at CS Summit 3, uh, losing only to NRG in the finals. So look, Maybe he's had enough time. I think I spoke about this last podcast. But these guys getting banged out here so quickly feels like a bit of a tolling bell for a team which has Yugi. It has Config. It has Cajun B. They should be doing more. And I think the ejection of Nico uh, just before these playoffs, after he got you there in the first place or helped you get there, it's probably not a good idea so close before the miners. Um, I'd actually like to do a bit of an interview with Nico. I think he seems like a really fun dude. I cannot find his email online. So if there's any detectives out there who want to help me find Nico, the Danish Nico, not uh, the Bosnian Nico, um, if they want to help me find his contact details, get in touch. Uh, another team that was a bit disappointing here was X-Space Soldiers. I don't think it was very surprising that they came in last, but it was a bit sad. They lost, uh, of course, Zentaros just before this and brought in Yam, the Australian Orpa. He didn't seem to make a huge difference, even though he topped frag in both of the matches they played. They lost the best of one against Ensign, the best of three against North, uh, who are admittedly the best teams here. But um, they just didn't seem nearly as polished or practiced as the other teams. I hope this just makes them hungrier. It would be a shame to see them dissolve post-Zentaras, especially as old mate Yam just moved to Europe, got himself in a Turkish team, top frag both matches. This is a great opportunity. Someone sponsor these boys. Uh, Windigo. We're another team who's been banged out. I didn't see any of their matches. There was a lot of hype around a particular player called Poison. He was the highest rated player at the Miners Qualifier, actually. So there was a lot of... Um, well, there was some expectations for how he would do, but Windigo didn't manage to do many good things at all. They did beat North in their opening best of one, but then lost to Ents and uh, couldn't win the best of three against North in a rematch. Ents, of course, won the whole minor. I probably should have announced that at the start. <laughs> but um, Ents were by far and away the most well-rounded team here. They just quietly smashed three separate teams on their way to topping the minors. Uh, and in fact, even though they're currently ranked uh, number 11, I think they definitely look like a top 10 team right now. And when they get to the major proper, they are going to climb their way up the rankings and be taking down some teams in the top 10. Mark my words. Um I think it was only Valiants who really took them to the brink here. And Sergey, of course, the young prodigy, was top fragging for most of the time in this minor. Now, North, um, I can't obviously say definitive things about these guys until they finish their map matchup with Vitality. Except the, I still don't feel like this team is fully living up to their fact that they basically have the best branding in the whole of Counter-Strike. 
I say that only partly tongue in cheek, but the black on the white on black and the lion's head is just so cool. And the team is just never as cool as the branding. Um, anyway, Valde, as of recording this, dropped a 40 bomb in regulation against Vitality. He had 40 kills and 13 deaths on Mirage. And I think a couple of aces in there for good measure. So he, of course, is ascending into the next level of Valhalla. Uh, meanwhile, Vitality uh, have done basically pretty much as expected. They've been up and down. They, uh, I wouldn't say they've been carried by Zywu. I think that's a bit unfair to the rest of the team members, but he's definitely been the star player on this team. Uh, and in fact, their new addition of Alex in replace of Happy, I don't think has seemed to pay off, to be honest with you, in the games I've seen. And I, I didn't see all of them, admittedly, but the games I saw, he was pretty sluggish. He was making some really daft-looking plays, uh, and he definitely wasn't putting up much in terms of fragging. I believe he's been adding somewhat to the ideas uh, for uh, NBK and how they would uh, play out some of their strats. But the CT side of the vitality, uh, the T side of the vitality, I should say, has never really looked too flash. And at the end of the day, that has to come down to uh, NBK and what seems to be somewhat of a lackluster uh, strat pool. Anyway. Perhaps we'll have some more to say about this at the end of the podcast when this match is over. Why don't we move on to the debacle that is the I Buy Power Masters? Now, the I Buy Power Masters... <laughs> look, it's, it's only been one day. It's only been one day, and I think the second day either has just started or will be starting very soon. Uh, so this podcast will be out of date by the time that you know it comes out, basically. But... If you didn't catch it, I'm not going to run it into the ground um, because you've probably heard something about how it went. Basically, it was a very, very disastrous first day for this tournament, which is in its fourth year, actually. They had a four-hour delay, um, and partly this was due to the fact that the way the stage was set up, players could look up and see the screen where the where the, where the, where the, uh, the whole game was being cast and so could see what was going on in the other team's viewpoints. Uh, to solve this, they turned off the screen or put it onto a static image and then brought in two TVs, which they put at the front of the stage for the audience. So the audience paid all this money to go to the theater and basically watch it on screens as if they were in someone's living room. I believe I Buy Power have issued refunds to anyone who wanted it. Um, hopefully there'll be a different configuration today at this uh, uh, on the stage. One of the other problems was DK, the journalist who's been on this podcast before, absolute legend, he tweeted out that um, <laughs> the tournament organizers didn't check anyone's bags when they came into the room. So I think it was his tweet that triggered the TOs to send everyone out again, check their bags and bring them back in, which was a further delay. Either way, when they eventually got going with the coverage of the first map, which was Australia's first complexity, the three uh, people on the desk, their mics weren't balanced. Uh, and when the casters eventually got going, it sounded absolutely terrible. It was possibly the worst audio I've ever heard at a tournament. I shouldn't be smiling while I'm saying this because it was really painful and I'd waited up for a long time. And it was past my bedtime and I was falling asleep. But it definitely did feel like a first-year media arts student broadcast, which was a shame because this is this is Los Angeles. Like this is the, this is the home of media, um, and this is their fourth time in a, in a year, fourth year in a row doing it. The coverage was unmatched. The cameras were weren't matched color-wise. The coverage was 
overexposed. The cameras were cheap. It was handheld. This is a truly budget tournament. Um, I didn't actually see all the matches. In fact, no one did because I think they only managed to play two online before they had to <laughs> get out of the theater, maybe two or three. Um, but either way, the first match I saw was Australia's first complexity. And this was a bit of a whitewash, to be honest with you. Australis were laughing, basically having fun the whole time. Whereas Complexity, who, as we know, now have Rike and Nothing, who come in to replace Android and Ye, uh, I think just for the major anyway, until Jason Lake can convince some bigger players to come in and join the team. Um, they weren't looking like they were having fun at all. They were taking it very seriously, which they should, to be honest with you. This is their first showing with a new lineup, and they have something to prove before the major, considering how well they did at the last one. Um, but the whole thing felt a bit silly. Complexity weren't really playing as a team. They sort of seemed to be playing a bit f- headless, like a bit of a puggy mixed team. And they actually reminded me of 3D Max, and it could have been... Um, well, anyway, a 3D Max. I don't mean um, the 3D Max we have now, but the 3D Max who played, I think, the face at major qualifiers when they brought in Scream. And perhaps they had Keo as well standing in. But either way, it just felt like five players in FPL. Um, just sort of running around and doing whatever strat they felt like and hoping they can get an opening pick. Um, I should put out a little shout-out here because just after this match, I had a message from Bryce. Bryce, of course, you know, is one of the long-time listeners of this podcast, a.k.a. B-Twice. And the shout-out here is because I was unable to message him back. Bryce messaged me something along the lines of, how shit is this? (laughs) Four-hour delay. Sound is crap. Um, FML. And Bryce... Sorry I didn't message you back. I don't think Telstra um, would allow me to do it. For some reason, my message wouldn't go through. But I feel you, buddy. I commiserate with you. I was pretty pissed off at this point. Then again, the next match uh, happened, and that was Cloud9 versus Astralis, I think it was. I think it was straight into Astralis or Fnatic. Anyway, they looked... Oh, no, it was Astralis. And Cloud9 just actually were looking like really fun and really good, and we're having a lot of fun. And Flusher uh, did some... Very, very cool things. Uh, no, it was against Fnatic. Um, oh, I can't remember now. It was so late. I was getting so tired at this point. Um, Cloud- Cloudon actually looked quite uh, quite good. They didn't really have a T-side together, which probably is due to the fact that there's um, a very weird identity in the team right now. But their CT side looked monstrous. <clears throat> um, anyway, let's move on from these games, which I sort of half-watched. Uh, I'm not going to go over all the results, but needless to say, the two people who've gone through to the semis are Liquid and Astralis. And one of the upset games here was the first showing of the new phase lineup with Adrian. They played Ghost Gaming and they lost 16-14. Now, Ghost, I should mention, also have a new lineup. They have Freakazoid now, who stepped in for Sub Rosa. Freakazoid, of course, Ryan Abadir, who... Look... I've said some things about Freakazoid in this podcast before. Not nasty things. I did question his handling of his brother's defection from a Swamp Patrol earlier, late last year, I should say. But I'm definitely not a long-term fan, as some of you listeners probably are from his days on Cloud9. Not because I don't like the guy, but but I just don't... Uh, haven't I haven't twigged as to the appeal just yet. But I'm open. I'm open. Uh, either way... This was a bit of a disaster showing for FaZe. And a very weird one, too, because Nico went up, went 33 kills, um, despite the rest, the fact that the rest of his team, uh, like none of them actually went positive at all. So I think he was plus 13 or something, and they were all uh, negative players on the rest of the team. And 
this this feels like a headless phase, doesn't it? I just don't feel like Nico can lead this team of egos, you know? And I think one of the reasons is, is the ages. You've got the Kazakhstani Adrian. He's 28. Olof's 26. Guardian's 27. Reigns 24. Nico is 21. Like, why is the youngest guy leading this team? And I've met the guy. He's a lovely guy. He's very nice. Uh, he's very focused. He's very dedicated. But he's not charismatic at all. He's very single-minded. Um, but he's not charismatic. And Carrigan, at least, was charismatic. So I don't think... I mean, look, this is one game, and I know Ghosts have given them a bit of a scare. I think it was Belo Horizonte, actually, in the past, where they've actually looked quite good against FaZe. Uh, but this is not a good uh, start to this new roster whatsoever. Now, we should just jump back a little bit to Cloud9, because there is a bit of news about Cloud9. They did debut at this uh, tournament with Rambo. <clears throat> this is not random Rambo. This is Ronald Kim Rambo. Uh, trialing is their coach. Now, if you recall, a few episodes ago, it looked like Semphis was going to be their coach. I think he was on trial. Uh, <laughs> we had some musings about his uh, Instagram, his lifting Instagram um, back then. Uh, that appears to have been all for nothing. It looks like he wasn't benching quite enough for Jack Etienne. Rambo, I think we've profiled before. I have a weird feeling that we've gone a little bit deep into Rambo before, perhaps when he was on complexity. But uh, in case we didn't, and I just dreamt myself doing a podcast where I talked about him, uh, Rambo is basically <clears throat> nearly as old as me, actually. He's 33. So he's, he's, he's essentially one foot in the grave. He moved over to CSGO at some point during the Triassic period, and he joined complexity as a player, I guess shortly after the Second Ice Age, around 2010. And he became their coach in 2016. I think I'm getting a weird deja vu that I may have mused about what happened in between 2010 and 2016 uh, in the life of Ronald Kim. Someone's going to message me saying he was some financial analyst or he worked in a bank, um, neither of which um, I'm really too interested in. Uh, anyway, he's got some lost years in there, some mystery years. Perhaps he was chirping in, in uh, Nepal. Perhaps he was rafting in uh, Queenstown. Either way, he is now the coach, it seems, for Cloud9. Actually, one of the interesting things about Ronald Kim was that he co-authored a guide called The Art of Counter-Strike. If you're an OG like myself, although I'm not that OG really, I just like to pretend I am, uh, this was basically the Bible back in the day. He wrote it with a guy called Steel, not the Steel from Ghost Gaming, but a Canadian Steel. He was a player, and he also wrote it with Thorin. Um, and you can actually find this online still, I believe, at Tau CS. Uh, uh, let me just have a look. TauCS.net, T-A-O-CS.net. You can buy it for twenty nine ninety five. Now it obviously applies to one point six, but if you're hungry for some CS knowledge and you want to level up, this is how the pros used to do it back in the ditty old day. Uh, let's move on to some um, previews for the NA Minor and the Asia Minor. They're coming up in two days, and there's a lot of teams about which I know nothing. Now, the NA Minor <clears throat> features some teams about which I know something and some teams about which I know almost nothing. Uh, we have Envy, Furia, NRG, E-United, Bravado, Team 1, Ints, and Imperial. We'll start with Imperial. And, of course, they are not to be 
confused with The Imperial, who are the British organization who now make up the bulk of Valiance. <clears throat> Imperial in this minor are actually a Brazilian team. They're ranked 109th and they feature such names as ZKQS and Showtime. Showtime you may know from his time on Tempo Storm and he did a little stint on Immortals, as did ZKQS who had a bit of a stand-in period I think when KNG and and mates shat the bed on that one. Uh, so they've got some experience. I don't know how far they're going to go. They're not very, they're not really high in the rankings at this point. Uh, Ince is another Brazilian team. I think there's three of them in this roster, in this in this minor, I should say three. Yeah, because Fury is in there as well. Um, Ince ha- have a much better chance at this minor than Imperial. They have KNG, Yell, and Shello, and they actually won the qualifier for this, so they're in with a good chance. Team one are uh, an EU, uh, sorry, an EU, an NA team. They, I don't really know too much about Team One TBH with you, but they did beat Swallow Troll and Rogue at the qualifiers. They actually could be a bit of a dark horse at this one. They're ranked 51st. Now the next team is Bravado, and Bravado, you would of course know and love for their weird emergence out of the South African ether. Uh, at DreamHack Winter last year, they came second to Ents, I believe it was, in the grand final. They beat teams like Luminosity and I think a United on the way there. They also did quite well in this minor, uh, beating a bunch of teams that were ranked far higher than them. They are now actually currently ranked 22nd. One of the reasons they've been on the radar recently too is because they've basically run out of money. They haven't been able to secure a sponsorship for their campaign, which has been going on in Texas. They have a gaming house there. They put out an impassioned plea, and it wasn't a Kickstarter page. I think it was an Indiegogo page where they explained that a lot of the surprising runs that they've had of, at tournaments have taken them them by surprise as well and were basically funded by their personal savings. They're now in debt, and they turned to the community for, I think, about 50 grand, maybe about 20 grand or 25 grand or something, or 30 grand perhaps. I think as of this podcast, they're about 11 days out. They've had a, uh, the deadline extended because they're only at 17 grand. If you want to contribute to them, chuck them some money. But I think if they do well at this minor, which is only in two days, they should have no trouble getting a sponsorship because at the very least, they'll have sticker money rolling in come the major time. These guys are actually going to be really exciting to watch because I think unlike some of the other teams, they're going to be playing with a real hunger. This could be the make or break for them, whether they stay in the rolling fields of Texas or are uh, banished back to the savannas of South Africa, possibly is on the line here. Uh, Envy, of course, is the team now helmed by Carrigan, temporary though it, though it may be. Now, Envy have been mentioned by this podcast several times as being the ship uh, on whence uh, Nifty now sails following his ejection or perhaps voluntary uh, exit from <clears throat> Renegades. They've copped a bit of flack for being a weird mix of what people are describing as washed-up NA players and players with potential such as Nifty. This is going to be one I whose whose games I will watch avidly. I think if Carrigan can do something with these guys, he will. Uh, well, let's just put it this way: if Faze continue losing to teams like Ghost at I by Power or get banged out of that tournament in their game tonight. And then Carrigan takes Envy into the major proper. There's going to be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth in the FaZe Clan camp for sure. Envy are currently ranked 40th. 
And of course, uh, players like JDM are no stranger to the major. So they actually have a chance. They have a chance. And it'll be fun to watch. Now, Furia, as I mentioned, are the third Brazilian team. They recently came onto the radar, even though they're only ranked 44th, with a bit of rumor uh, surrounding one of the members, Kay Serrato, who apparently was in talks to join MIBR as the fifth. Of course, that's now Phelpsy. Uh, these guys haven't really done too much impressive recently, if we're not too aware of them. However, they beat Ghost and Envy online recently for Star Series. And to get to these minor qualifiers, they beat Swell Patrol and Luminosity. So look, they're not that bad. Perhaps they'll do something good. Let's move on to NRG, our second last team. NRG are, of course, the number one favorites here. They're ranked eighth. Yeah, baby. I want to see these guys go to the semis at least in this major. I think they definitely have the potential to do it. They did actually lose quite recently to Ghost on MIBR at the EPL Season 8, but as we have heard from Daddy Daps himself, they've got a psychologist who is now helping the team. Perhaps with this extra level of support, the losses late last year won't factor too heavily in their consistency. And old Dapsmeister has been going hard with the scrap creation over his Canadian Christmas. E United is the last team we will profile. They are ranked 38th. They are, of course, led by Finesse or FNS. However you want to uh, label him, he is the 4D underwater chess champion of the NA scene uh, who, from his from his uh, ejection from Cloud9 last year, has been somewhat under the radar. United actually have the addition now of Cooper, who is, of course, Freakazoid's brother. Um, I don't know much about how he plays. I think he was a bit of a star on Swell Patrol. But uh, Moose is definitely the star of this team here. He's got a rating of 1.26, far higher than the rest of the team. So be be keeping an eye on Moose in his games in a couple of days. Moose is called Caleb Jane, which struck me as quite a wrestler name. He's 20 years old. He's actually Canadian too, so he's doing it for the bacon. Uh, I think, of course, the favorites are pretty clear here. It's NRG. But probably there's going to be a bit of a battle for second and third place between Bravado and Envy, hopefully, if Caro can do something to that lineup. Now, the Asia minor is where my knowledge about these teams really shits the bed. The teams we have competing here are CyberZen, Vici, Gosu, MVP, PK, Akus, Greyhound, Renegades, and beyond. If I'd properly done my homework in this podcast, had some sort of uh, structure or funding or, I don't know, discipline to it, I would have gotten in someone from CSGO to Asia. Of course, that is the website. For all your premier Asian CSGO news, uh, we are affiliated with them, and we would have some actual in-depth information on these teams. In the meantime, I think you should probably go to that website. I'm sure there'll be more info on those teams there. Read up a little bit so you can enjoy this minor along with me. Uh, the first three teams I will profile I know Jack Diddley about. We have CyberZen, who are from China. They're ranked 59th. We have Vichy, they're ranked 69th uh, from China. And Gosu, who are ranked 150th. They're actually Korean. But the next Korean team is MVP PK, and I think they're actually in with a chance to place in this tournament. They're ranked 42nd. Of course, they're famous for having Solo, who is a legendary player from 1.6, so they've got a lot of experience behind them. Now, Aekus, A-E-Q-U-S, uh, I think it's some reference to the horse, <laughs> a horse or a horse-like creature. Um, they're actually quite a mysterious team. They're Israeli. There's nothing about them on HL TV except for a couple of online matches they've had about against teams I don't know about. Uh, I don't know how quite how they've made it into this tournament. 
they have a Twitter though, Acus Gaming, I think it's called, uh, Acus Games or Acus Sports. I think they have about 103 followers. They now have 103, thanks to old Truthy giving them a follow. So if you want to support uh, an underdog team, get on Twitter and um, give them some love. We should move on to Greyhound, the Australian team. They're ranked 43rd. We actually haven't seen much good stuff out of Greyhound since IEM Sydney last year. If you recall, they beat SK and Nelly beat FaZe. Now, that was an old lineup. Of course, they have now Sterling, who's replaced Gratis Faction. Sterling is a young AWPA, uh, somewhat under criticism from some other Australian players. I can't remember who it was who um, did a little bit of poop on his head, but hopefully he's grown up in the in the intervening six months. Um Greatest Faction is, of course, now on Renegades, but here's a cool thing. Greyhound beat Renegades in the qualifier. However, they did recently lose the PLG Grand Slam against ECL. Now, if you don't know who ECL is, that's because they were only a team for this one tournament, and they were a mixed team with Scream, Doc, and Truth. So this is not a good look for Greyhound because it suggests a team who are relying somewhat on anti-stratting and not perhaps having a fully-fledged, uh, how do you say it, teamwork... Uh, game plan themselves. Anyway, it'll be interesting to see what they do because it's been a while since we've seen them in a Tier 1 LAN. Renegades are, of course, the number one favorites in this. They are ranked 13th. They had a recently uh, a pretty good run at EPL. They beat big in G2 and they only went down to Mouse Sports. <sighs> I look forward to these matches with Renegades. I don't know how, I don't really have any idea how they will do. Um, beyond the last team we'll profile, they are ranked 201st. <clears throat> which is pretty far out there. Beyond are a Thai team. They're based in Bangkok. They previously beat Boot DS. I think that's one of the highest profiles they've beaten in the past. Boot DS are, of course, the now defunct Japanese team. Now, Beyond have done some amazing things at the Thai, in the Thai scene in the past. They're definitely the number one Thai team. But considering their recent performance at Extremes Land Asia, which if I recall correctly, I think they came in last uh, they are probably not in with a chance here for an underdog upset. Um, now, the favourites here, obviously, the boys. Probably the run-ups, the runners-up uh, favourites are the other other boys. And then we might see a tussle for third place between some of the Asian teams. I'd say MVP, PK are probably a shoe in to get some ranking here. And most likely it'll be third. All right, that's enough of uh, match talk. Serious stuff. Let's get onto some. Well, I guess it's less serious in some ways and more serious in other ways. Last week we talked about Tarek's twit longer, <laughs> and we're, we're going to talk about it again because, it, like I said, it's stuck in my crawl, but it's given me a lot of food for thought. Um, and if you recall, if you didn't listen to the episode. Uh, he tweeted about um, leaving MIBR, and one of the things he said was, "Everything happens for a reason." Uh, I went pretty deep on that statement last week, but let's go even deeper because in the last week, I've been doing a little reading, uh, not not necessarily because of this statement, but in my readings, I did get some more thoughts about it. I was reading about Spinoza. Uh, Spinoza was a Dutch philosopher. His name was Barak de Spinoza. Uh, and I actually really knew about him sort of through my avid mainlining of of Christopher Hitchens in my late 20s who referenced him quite often as being one of his idols or or one of the people he held up in in very high esteem and I finally sort of became a little more acquainted with Spinoza's ideas 
Spinoza argued that we didn't um, actually have free will at all. And he had this idea about determinism, which I think was actually more of a definitional device, where basically everything could be said to have an explanation. Um, And he called this the principle of sufficient reason. And he believed that this applied to everything that is, but also everything that is not. Now, his major work was called Ethics. And it's regarded by a lot of people as one of the most important works of human civilization ever. And so I'd just like to quote a little bit from Ethics, uh, because I think this applies to what we were talking about last week with Tarek. He says, Of everything whatsoever, a cause or reason must be assigned, either for its existence or for its non-existence. For example, if a triangle exists, a reason for cause must be granted for its existence. If, on the contrary, it does not exist, a cause must also be granted, which prevents it from existing or annuls its existence. So that's the end of the quote. <clears throat> but what fascinates me about Tarek's statement is like it's such a blank illustration of the desire that we have to deny what's essentially a bounding box of naturalism that Spinoza talks about. Um, and then I think that quote illustrates. He almost sees it as predictable, this uh, <laughs> This desire to feel like we're in control of our emotions or, or that it has a reason that we're part of the natural world and being part of that natural world or nature is basically the same as being God because God is part of the natural world. God is nature and the beingness with that nature or beingness with God is basically the same as being movement, being action, that existence is action. Therefore, everything we do is not for a reason but because of a reason, reason is the reason we exist and do things. Look, it does my head in. Uh, I think maybe that quote enunciates things a little more, at least in terms of what I was trying to say last week. As I said, I'm not for determinism because it it removes the idea that we have free will and therefore what's the point of living. But Spinoza did have quite an interesting way to define uh, the free will we don't have, essentially, in a way that feels less oppressive, in a way that, well, everything sort of has a reason and therefore the idea that we have a free will sort of changes. Anyway, uh, I hope I haven't confused you. Um, But on another note, I think there's another little quote from Spinoza that I thought was a banger. It doesn't really apply to Tarak's situation, but I thought we should just talk about it here because it's really cool. He says, Without intelligence, there is not rational life, and things are only good insofar as they aid man in his enjoyment of the intellectual life, which is defined by intelligence. Contrary-wise which is a word I want to use daily. Uh, Contrary-wise, whatsoever things hinder man's perfecting of his reason and capability to enjoy the rational life are alone called evil. Which, like, that's the end of the quote there. If I'd, if I'd read this or been introduced to this when I was in the period of my life, uh, when I rejected the religion that had been inculcated into me growing up in a fairly religious uh, environment, I think my life would have turned out pretty differently. (coughs) Um, But this quote definitely illustrates why I am against gambling and all forms of it and anyone who provides it as a company. I think the people who promote it uh, have slightly different reasons for doing so than perhaps the companies who actually provide it. Uh, But anyway, I think it's a wicked way to define good and evil. Uh, and it appeals to me a lot. Let's um, 
get into some even more abstract shit. And I was looking at um, a video that was released by the people who've put out this new game, Anthem. It's not Bungie. It's um, Epic, I think, perhaps, or one of those other... Blizzard, perhaps. One of those other huge um, gaming behemoths. And Anthem is their new online first-person shooter that's probably going to come to every single platform. It looks like a sort of a Destiny-esque, huge world, multi-sort of environment game. And one of the things that struck me about it was that in the game you wear these things called javelin suits, which a very ultra-serious voiceover tells you, grant you, grants you uh, all sorts of you know extra superpowers. You can fly. You can you have super strength. You know you can uh, shoot energy blasts. You can deflect bullets. All that kinds of stuff. Um, and I just had this real sense of <clears throat> not only is this a a total creative dead end, this whole fucking game, uh, and and the worst sort of uh, how should I say it entry level rehash of done to death game elements. I think I've seen in a long time. But also, it's so well perhaps because of that, it's so bald face faced in its illustration of the way games are trying to empower people who i guess if they like them must be disempowered and or feeling disempowered and it really made me think about this idea of socio-economic mobility uh, and i've talked about it with my friends a few times in the last couple of years because i'm at the age where i'm reaching the point where finances become really really important to what i want to do next in my life in my 20s and like a lot of other people in my 20s the finances were sort of a means to enjoy myself and expand my experiences of life whereas in my 30s uh like a lot of my peers too there's much more of a concentration on how can finances help me establish myself how can they help me settle myself how can they help me create a home or an environment or some sort of base in which i can then have a have stability for the creation of a family or the continuation of a career uh, and so socioeconomic mobility has been like a really important topic that we've thought about. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, socioeconomic, socioeconomic mobility is basically the ability for people to cross between social or economic levels. Um, and it can be over their lifetime and it can be over multiple generations, but it means that you can go from, let's say, the poorest uh 90th percentile to the poorest the, the richest 10th percentile um you would might you might be crossing several classes in that in that journey or you might simply cross from let's say lower class to lower middle class or middle class to middle upper class um and one of the reasons this came onto our radar a couple of years ago in discussions with friends was that australia which was commonly seen as one of the most m- mobile countries in the world with the most opportunity for advancement i.e you could come here as basically or come there i should say go there as as a poor immigrant and work your way up to the richest class in one generation was no longer the case and i think it was declared by some census bureau or government watchdog or, or some journalist outlet that this was no longer the case about 10 years ago and it's been a bit of a fallacy that we've enjoyed telling ourselves. The Australia has been regarded as a land of opportunity for quite some time, and with good reason. If you look at how the country was formed, basically uh, several boats full of prisoners from the UK, 
whose whose prisons were overflowing were sent to Australia. Uh, they settled a bunch of land, killed a bunch of the natives, and after a few years, in some cases, very little time at all, depending on the skill level of the convicts, um, in terms of things like farming and stuff, people were given land by the British government. So you could you could steal a loaf of bread in in the UK. This is about two hundred twenty years ago, <clears throat> two hundred thirty years ago, and find yourself in prison, find yourself then on a boat to Australia, which I think took about 100 days at the time, get off on that boat, work your ass off in the colony as a prisoner for six months, and then have be granted a huge amount of land that you could then farm on by the government, all in the course of like two or three years, um, which basically meant that it was the land of opportunity from the get-go. Actually, a very interesting story about the uh, first fleet that if you haven't read The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes, you might not know, and it's definitely a story we weren't told growing up, was that the convicts were sent over in two large ships. Well, more than two, but the men and women were uh, separated amongst those ships. And like I said, there are there were over 100 days in the journey, and the journey was terrible, and people died of scurvy and diseases and all sorts of terrible conditions on the ship. But when they got there and landed in Botany Bay, the everyone sort of came ashore and the people who didn't die uh, basically started having sex because it had been so long and it got to the point where they were on the beach for so long having sex that the governor had to come down and fire his gun at the air and threaten to shoot people I'm not sure he may have actually shot people as well but he had to basically shoot <laughs> his gun several times to get people off the beach and stop fucking um, pardon my language for anyone who's listening to this podcast with kids in the room anyway that was the, uh, the auspicious beginnings to our colony Either way, let's get back to the <laughs> the idea of socioeconomic mobility. Um, some of the research that came out recently was that the top six happiest nations were Norway, Denmark, Australia, New Zealand, Sweden, and Canada. So actually, comparatively speaking, we have quite good socioeconomic mobility. It has actually sharply declined since 1980, however. And I think this is really worth talking about, especially because I have a lot of listeners who are in their 30s, because if you're in the U.S., uh, and I know a lot of my listeners, my listeners are in the US, and this doesn't apply to my listeners who are in Denmark, who are in New Zealand, who are in Sweden, who are in Canada. Actually, this is the this is basically my um, listenership, although I think there's quite a few of you from Denmark as well. But if you're in the US that has been suffering from a growing inequality, your parents or your you may have grown up in a family in the 80s that had benefited from like a really high level of economic mobility. But you are now in a stage where, like I said, you're creating a family in a country that is very, very different. And I don't know whether I'd come out and say the American dream is a total fallacy, but definitely growing up, it was still a part of the narrative. And the idea that it's a land of opportunity is definitely not the case when you compare it to other countries, even like Australia, who, as I said, has had a sharp decline in their economic mobility in the last 20 years. And so the idea that you, uh, the birth lottery, if you've studied any economics, you may have heard of this idea, but that's basically that you are born to rich parents. That's actually a really consequential thing um, in a way that it wasn't in the past in the US today. And this is basically because, like I said, the income inequality is so high now. And that also means that if a kid moves up the ladder equally like a kid in, or with as much sort of, um, how should I say, 
gains as much in the socioeconomic ladder as a kid did 25 years ago, he's still not going to get the same amount of income value from his climb that a kid in the 80s did. I hope I'm not confusing you here. Anyway, there's been about five large studies in the last few years that have found the United States is far less mobile than comparative nations. And there was a project led by this guy called Marcus Yanti, who was an economist at a Swedish university, and he found that 42% of American men raised in the bottom fifth of incomes stay there as adults. And that is a level of persistent disadvantage that is much, much higher than Denmark, um, even than Britain. Denmark's 25%, Britain's 30%. And Britain's famous for its class constraints, but it's nowhere near the US right now. And meanwhile, there's only 8% of American men who are at the bottom who actually rose to the top fifth, which compares to 12% of the British and 14% of the Danes. So there's a lot of reference to references. I think less nowadays is the illusions to spill, but there's a lot of references to US being a classless society. Um, but about 62% of Americans, both male and female, who are raised in the top fifth of incomes stay in the top two fifths. 65% born in the bottom fifth stay in the bottom two fifths. And I think one of the other reasons I was really thinking about this after watching that Anthem video was a lot of talk I've been doing recently with some of my colleagues about the popularity of superhero movies and the way that popularity sort of doesn't really decline when you look at 30-year-old men or men in their 30s. And I have a lot of peers, and I guess it's only anecdotal. I, don't, I haven't really done any research about this, about the actual demographics of who goes to Avengers movies or whatever. But I have so many friends in their 30s who avidly go and watch these movies and are really into the next Aquaman and blah, 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 blah. And to me, it seems like a very similar way of addressing uh, their, their world of imagination as Anthem, as that new game out by whoever the bloody studio did it. Um, and I think it's the people who go and buy those tickets to those movies assiduously will probably buy Anthem when it's released and sit on their Xbox and go through the motions of wearing this virtual suit that gives them powers. And I, I, I don't even think that there are a lot of people who really, really enjoy it. Well, I should say, I think there's probably a huge percentage of those people who won't necessarily enjoy it the way they enjoyed it as a child. But it has become the way they engage with what we were talking about last episode in terms of their inner life in a way that's like a smoker who doesn't who may not necessarily does may not necessarily enjoy the cigarette that they have at lunchtime but still goes out and has it anyway i don't really know where i'm going with this it just kind of struck me as part of the cultural zeitgeist that i just don't i don't i don't like it I don't, I don't really know why, but I don't like it. In the same way, I don't really like cigarettes. Um, in the same way that I've smoked and and perhaps will smoke again, and the same way that I've felt like I should go and watch an Avengers movie that's come out and probably will see more superheroes in the future. In some ways, it is, it is what modern culture is, or at least what is visible in modern culture. Um, I definitely won't play Anthem. I've never played Destiny. There's a huge amount of mainstream gaming that I just do not give an absolute rat's ass about. I don't play Call of Duty. I've never played Fortnite. Um, and it's very, 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 very difficult to find a game on the Steam store that I'm even uh, interested in. Now, that actually brings me to another point, which is 
some of you, and by some of you, I mean one of you, decided to point out the fact that I had broken my no addictions vow in the last episode and was quaffing a beer. This is true, uh, and I am guilty of such. In fact, I broke it back in Christmas time because it was at least 35 degrees Celsius in Australia. It was Christmas, and I felt like a beer. In fact, I've broken most of my um, no addiction no addiction things. I have not, however, uh, broken my vow to play no CS. I maintain that vow assiduously, and I shall until March, mid-March. Um, I don't necessarily feel like a failure at doing that. I did feel the good effects of, of quitting things like drinking. Um, I think I can go back to doing it whenever I want. I'm doing it less than I was. I feel like I rely less on those uh, addictions. And also, I'm really a lot more aware of when I blindly want to do something like smoke a cigarette or drink a beer again, which is great. And actually, it's the reason I did it. If you do something, if you abstain from something long enough, you really notice when you want it. When you And when it comes back to doing it again, you're more aware of what may previously have been unconscious behaviors. So I would still recommend it to anyone who thought it was a good idea and wanted to know how the experiment went. Uh, let's move on to some random thoughts. I love that I call them random thoughts, even though the others were pretty damn random. But actually, before we jump into some of these, uh, it has come to my attention that the Vitality North match is over. Vitality are going through to the major. They defeated North in the final map of Inferno, 16-8. Uh, it's a shame for North. I think they are going to have a chance still, of course, like Windstrike, to be in the major. Big shame for Valder, who top-fragged by a long shot over the three maps. On the other side was Zaiwu, who top-fragged so hard. <laughs> he had a rating of 1.56. The closest next player on his team was NBK with 0.96. I mean, jeepers creepers. That's pretty intense. Anyway, uh, let's move on to some random thoughts. Now, what this is, is basically some notes that I found in the notes section of my old phone. I've just switched to a UK phone, and I was deleting the notes in the old phone. Hence why they're random, because they're really unconnected. And maybe I won't read them all because they are so unconnected. But here, here, here's one of them. Or here's some of them anyway. Uh, the Milky Way is so big that if you made a scale model of it that was the size of the US, you would still need a microscope to see the sun. The Milky Way is so big. If you made a scale model of it that was the size of the US, you would still need a microscope, mi- microscope to see the sun. Uh, that's one of them. <laughs> Another one was um, with Instagram, Facebook, etc. Everyone has a chance to be a model. Everyone is exposed to the over-identification of ego with appearance. Now, what that refers to is I, I knew quite a lot of models in my late uh, late teens, early twenties, uh, and there were some who really survived it quite well and made money out of it and went on to do interesting things in their 20s and 30s there are some who really did not survive it as well and they're the ones who i over identified with the feedback they got from the world about their looks and basically freud had a way of of describing this mistake that people could make where they turned their id or their id was tuned too highly to their ego and the ego is of course your outer your idea of your outer self and when you're a model you get 
constant daily feedback on your outer self and very little interest in your inner self. And therefore your inner self really starts to identify with your outer self. What that means is if you have a bad day where you wake up with a zit, your your identity is, there's a, there's a dampener on it, right? It suffers a hit. Whereas if you have a strong sense of your identity aside from your uh, outer self and the way people relate to your outer self, then it doesn't really matter if you have a, a, a bad skin day. And similarly, if you get to your 20s and or your late 20s and like a lot of young women who are models, your looks start to be in less demand, your inner id or your inner identity starts to really suffer and you can get a lot of confusion about who you are and where you're going and you could see a lot of young models when they were in their late teens or early 20s really fight with this concept and play up and, and take drugs and, and go off the rails because there's a huge amount of pressure from the outside world to identify with something that is actually is, is, is an anathema to personal growth and the kind of personal growth that people naturally want to be doing in their teens and early 20s. Anyway, what this thought was about is that when we're all on Instagram, we're all on Facebook, and we're all posting photos, and we're all actually being judged on a daily basis through our outward uh, input to the world or our outward face to the world, is that there's a danger that we can all actually over-identify with that ego and neglect the id. And it comes back to what we were talking about last week with the inner and outer life. Um, and I just thought it was, I think at the time, just quite a weird uh, thing that we all now have the possibility to have the sorts of drama in our own lives that previously was afforded only to models. Uh, anyway, that's the end of that thought. Uh, another one was discipline is choosing between what you want now and what you want most Mm, enough said uh here was another one we are drawn to trump because even looking at him you can tell he's had some sort of artificial procedure on his hair the sort of thing every balding man would do if they weren't afraid of ridicule so visually he represents a lack of shame about our most personal of desires and we'd write him off as shallow as an idiotic uh, an idiotic but our subconscious identifies him with bravery shameless self-interest while we ourselves struggle constantly to feel worthy of the most basic of promotions at work. The other reason we are drawn to him is because our rational subconscious knows he doesn't care about us. Like a hot girl, he's bathing in our attention but doesn't give a shit if we drop dead, which, for people with a collectively low self-esteem, thanks mostly to continuous advertising, we are suckers for this giant neg. Um, that's the end of the thought. Obviously, this was put in my phone some some point around 2016 when Trump <laughs> won the election. If you're not sure what a neg is, it, it comes from the uh, pickup artist world and was a term used to describe giving a woman a compliment while at the same time actually giving her an underhanded or a backhanded uh, disparaging remark or putting her down or raising yourself above her status. So the classic neg was, uh, you have a lovely dress. My sister has the same one. So you, you sound like you're giving her a compliment, but actually you're saying you're quite common uh, and you're kind of below me. And the idea was that women with low self-esteem or lower self-esteem would be more attracted to someone with higher self-esteem and that you could actually lower their self-esteem without them realizing you were doing it. Now, this pickup artist uh, stuff came from 
a subculture of men, most of whom were located in Los Angeles. If you've ever been to Los Angeles, you will know that the vast majority of women you meet who are good looking are there to be actresses or models, or perhaps are currently working as strippers or other things like that. And like the previous point, have over-identified their ids with their egos. They're very, very sensitive to how they are um, evaluated externally. And so for men who are interested in picking these women up, they could get them by making them feel worse. Whereas it's quite a special case. Women in Los Angeles are quite different to women even in uh, you know, San Francisco, for instance, which is not that far away, because not everyone has gone to San Francisco to make it as a model or a an actress or someone else who's looking for that external validation in the first place. However, the exploits from these pickup artists spread quite <laughs> globally and quite fast, and I think still probably has a lot of uh, subscribership on the internet somewhere. I don't know. I haven't paid any attention to it for a long time. But one of the books that really did them a lot of favors was called The Game. It was by Neil Strauss. It's actually a great read, but you've no one ever really pointed out, at least as far as I can tell, that this this whole thing was sort of being done in the vacuum of Los Angeles, which is a very, very different uh, world to the rest of the world. And look, at the end of the day as well, if, if you're a person who needs to put someone else down to make yourself feel good, then you're a fuckhead. Uh, anyway, that's a bit about Trump. <laughs> Went on a bit of a tangent there. This is a thought um, that I think probably I heard in a stand-up gig. It can't have been me. Anyway, I once accidentally typed my symptoms into IMDb instead of WebMD, and it said I had Gary Busey. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't think I thought that up. That's that's too clever for me. I must have heard it in a stand-up show somewhere and put it down because I thought it was funny. Um, all right, what's it? Was another one. This one's a bit long. Uh, oh, this is this was a quote from Meditations, which I think was from Epicurus, which I was reading at the time. This says, yeah, this is quite. This is good. Epicurus said, throwing away then all things, hold to these only which are few, and besides, bear in mind that every man lives only this present time, which is an indivisible point, and that all the rest of his life is either past or it is uncertain. Short then is the time which every man lives, and small the nook of the earth where he lives, and short too the longest posthumous fame, and even this only continued by a succession of poor human beings who will very soon die and who know not even themselves much less him who died long ago. That's that gives me shivers. That that sentence. It's just that's incredible. I think we'll read that again at the end of the podcast because it's just so powerful. Let's move on. Uh, one of the other thoughts was there is so much on the internet that is meaningless. Therefore, contributing contributing to it is meaningless. It's sane not to contribute to it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty uh, enough said there. I'm obviously contributing contributing to it now, but that's the uh, that's the that's the the rock of Sisyphus, is it not? Um, that we all must participate in. Uh, here's another thing. Here's another th- actually, this was my idea, and I think this is a genius idea. If your whole life flashes before your eyes, then will you relive it up to the moment where your life flashes before your eyes? In essence, meaning that you'd be in an endless recursive loop that you cannot get out of. I don't know if you understood that thought, but if part of your life is the flashing of your life before your eyes, you will endlessly be living back 
the flashing of your life before your eyes every time your life flashes before your eyes. It's like standing in front of a mirror with another mirror behind you. Um, anyway, that's a weird thought. Uh, here's another thought. Um, women resent unasked for men's attention. Wait, women resent unasked for men's attention when they've missed out on the asked for attention growing up. Ooh, that's an interesting one. So that's, I think that was, that really was about like women who didn't get the attention from their parents or probably particularly their fathers growing up can sometimes really resent when men give them too much attention in the present. Yeah, I think that comes back to the old idea of, um, yeah, I don't think we should go that too, too, too far into that one. That's a massive generalization. Uh, here's another one. When we fall in love, our central experience is a loss of control and that creates anxiety. Hmm. That's why we feel a bit anxious when we fall in love too, because we're a little bit out of control. It's a good thought to remember. If you ever start feeling anxious about a girl, then you may be in love. You may also be a control freak. Uh, the next one is a quote from my therapist who actually said it to me. <laughs> I might have actually said it on this podcast before because it's a gem. But I was talking about how I was feeling about my life and he said, you know what? This voice in your head is not right and it's not the truth. Next time when you're thinking these thoughts, you should say to yourself, I'm a human who is failing rather than a failed human. <laughs> I think, I mean, he was trying to, he was trying to make me feel better, but it's fun. There's something, I mean, there's truth in it, right? I'm not failed. I may be failing, but I'm not failed because my life is a continuum, uh, at least at this point. But I found it funny because he was acknowledging that I'm currently failing <laughs> or I was at the time when I was in therapy with him. Anyway, uh, here's another idea. Do centipedes have the movie Centipede Human? Mm-hmm. The old switcheroo. Uh, here's another idea. If a schizophrenic makes sense once they're inside their family, does a family make sense among its community? Oh, now that comes from the idea uh, that I was reading about last year from this guy called, what's his name? R.D. Lang, Ronald Lang, who was a therapist who started a bunch of thought around the idea that that schizophrenics make sense in their family. So I think we've talked about double binds before. And this was revolutionary at the time. And he had a lot of disciples. Radi Lang basically got this uh, concept from working in a psychiatric hospital and realizing that schizophrenics may be doing okay week in, week out with, uh, you know, living in an institute. But when their families turned up, all their symptoms returned. And that was when things really made sense to him. Um, and as a, as a therapist, as a psychologist, he was able to actually go, oh, okay, like here are the symptoms. And so he started like practicing a lot of family therapy. And a lot of his ideas were around the idea that you can be a young man or young woman in, in a family. And if you're getting mixed signals from your parents or the people around you, or more often than not, I think we've talked about this before, different generations so if you're getting a a message from your grandmother that's um, contradictory to the message you're getting from your mother for instance you will want to please them both but you cannot please them both uh, without basically going crazy or without displeasing the other person and so psychosis is induced sometimes or schizophrenia is induced depending on the amount of pressure that's applied to you uh, and the amount of support you have around you in terms of family and friends and whatnot and so in essence schizophrenics were formed because you would create 
two different personalities inside you, both of whom could please both of these directions from family members. So you could have one personality essentially that does what your grandmother wants you to do, which is be a good girl and not go out after 9 p.m. and get married when you're 21, or do what your mother do, or do what your mother says to do, which is, I just want you to be happy. I want you to have fun. I want you to live your life as an individual. Um, <clears throat> and so that's what the other personality could do. Anyway, his whole thing was that once you looked at once you once once you looked at the family in context, and you had the grandmother in, you had the mother in, you could see the different pressures that were being put put on this schizophrenic person, and therefore what was they would make sense in the context of the family. Therefore, if you had a family who well, I was I guess it was my thought if you had a family who uh, didn't make sense or you know you couldn't quite put the finger on the problem, once you put them in the context of a community, then perhaps you could work out where the family was going wrong. Anyway, that's uh, that's a whole other sort of Pandora's box of stuff, I think. Um, you know, there was one more quote from Spinoza, but I think we'll we'll leave it leave it there. That's enough random thoughts. We've gone pretty deep and weird in this episode. I think I will come back to this Epicurus quote because it's just such a great quote. You know what? I'm just going to pause this recording and find out if exactly it was Epicurus. One sec. Okay, it was actually Marcus Aurelius, which I should have remembered, but uh, I think it's such a it's such a powerful passage. Um, yeah, we should just end on it again. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can let me know on the Twitter at TruthCSGO. Uh, send me an email, the truth at the truthcsgo.com. Uh, the track we played from Beaufort actually isn't out yet. It was my uh, bad but we've inadvertently given it a world premiere. So you can uh, see more of their music at Beaufort.Asia. Uh, hopefully Josh will be back to help me with the news next week once we've had some more progressions with the NA and CIS minor, uh, NA and Asia minor, and I buy Power Masters. In the meantime, here's this quote from Marcus Aurelius once more. Throwing away then all things, hold to these only which are few. And besides, bear in mind that every man lives only this present time, which is an indivisible point, and that all the rest of his life is either past or it is uncertain. Short, then, is the time which every man lives, and small the nook of the earth where he lives, and short, too, the longest posthumous fame. And even this is only continued by a succession of poor human beings who will very soon die, and who know not even themselves, much less him who died long ago. Until next time, enjoy the game.